Let's turn on this Lord's Day when we commemorate the Lord's Supper to this time of special consideration from 1 Peter. Peter's epistle, the first of the epistles, 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we actually read the text, I want you to journey back in time 30 years before the time that Peter, being led of the Holy Spirit, actually writes what we're about to read. Are you with me? Life of Peter. We're going to be reading his letter, but I want to remind you of certain events 30 years before in his life before he writes this text. Where was he? Well, on a particular day, Peter was mending his nets on the shores of Galilee. Fact is, he and his crew had been up all night and had nothing but seaweed and bait fish for their effort. On that particular day, which Peter could never forget, Jesus of Nazareth was teaching a small congregation of people who had gathered on the hillside right near that beach. It takes Luke to record in his gospel that that needy crowd of people were pressing up against Jesus, even moving him backward toward the sea. No doubt his sandals were getting wet as the crowd built and they were hanging on his words. And were we to go to the Gospel of Luke there, we'd find two fishing rigs were docked on that day and learn that Jesus stepped into Simon Peter's boat and asked him, and I quote, put out a little way from the land. Jesus sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. I'll never quite forget my interest when I was taken out on a boat some years ago and was told what to call the various parts of the ship here and there to learn that there's actually a pulpit in most boats. Apparently that's what Jesus was using. I don't know. But when Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, uh, put out into the deep water, let down your nets for a catch. Now this is after all night fishing. So Simon answered and said, Master, We worked hard all night, and we caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. We just love this story, don't we? You know that they drew in such a quantity of fish that the nets began to break. Calling for the other boat, they too brought in such a catch that we read in the text that both of those boats actually began to sink. I like to refer to this as Peter's Waterloo. And yes, I mean to play on the words. On that morning, in his own heaving boat, combined with the preaching of Jesus moments before, and now for Peter, understand, the very creator of earth, of sky, and seas, who can command fish to fill nets. It is written, Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, and I quote, 
Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But the master of the sea and all of its fish is also the savior of sinners. Not only does he not walk away from Peter, it is written, Jesus said, do not fear Peter. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought those boats to land, and no doubt Peter had never had such an expensive catch as this, nevertheless, the text records what happened. Listen carefully. They left everything and followed Jesus. Like so many of the narratives of the Gospels, it's, it's the gospel message being played out in real-life drama. This was the gospel lived out on that day on the shores of Galilee. Jesus comes. <laughs> the sinner repents. The Savior calls. And the new disciple leaves everything to follow Jesus. That's the Christian life. And keep the image in your mind, will you, of that day in Peter's life. And now, three decades later, 30 years later, the fisher of men, Peter, writes these words, beginning at verse 17. If, it's better to translate that since, since you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, as if to say, no, make me no, no mistake, it is the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope, beloved, our faith and hope are in God. Now one more time, if you don't mind, go back again 30 years. And just remember what Peter's reaction to the presence of Jesus was in his boat. What was happening? Once Peter's spiritual eyes were first opened to the reality of God present in Christ, all he could do in that moment, you remember, was to cry out in fear. No doubt with all the accompanying body language, with, with head bowed, depart from me, I am a sinful man. This is the primal instinct of every sinner since our first parents. They hid themselves in the bushes at the sound of God walking in the garden, covering their nakedness, you remember, with leaves. 
Show me an unbeliever who still has no fear of God before their eyes, and I'll show you a man or a woman who actually really hasn't encountered the God of the Bible at all. At least, not yet. Jesus explained that the judgment of God in his righteous wrath will fall suddenly on those who refuse to confess their sinfulness and cry for mercy. I'm not saying it. Jesus said it. These are his words. This is the judgment. The basis of judgment is this, Jesus says. That light has come into the world. The problem is men love darkness rather than light. And listen, they will not, they will not come to the light because they're evil. They're fallen. They're sinners. They're blind. They're dead in trespasses and sin. They will not come to the light. A sinner exposed to the blazing brightness of God's infinite holiness, can only cry, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And in a day when he comes, all those who have not repented will run to the hills if they can find one. And they will not pray to God, they will pray to the mountain and say, fall on me, rather than I face such a judgment as this. In every case, as in Peter's case, There needs to be heard the beginning of good news. And they were found in Jesus' words that day. Fear not. Let it be clear that every sinner apart from Christ has every reason for time and eternity to dread and to be in fear. But to hear Jesus say to an admitted sinner like Peter, Fear not is the beginning of the gospel. I'm going to do something, Jesus says. I'm going to make you something you're not. You're a fisher of fish, and you didn't do so well after all last night. I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm going to transform your life. You're going to take everything familiar to you, and guess what? It's as though I'm turning your boat upside down, and you're going to leave it all, and you're going to follow me. In previous verses above our text today, if you look back, Peter has called the redeemed, that which we've been singing about this morning. Peter has called the redeemed, quote, the children of God. As obedient children, in verse 14, he says, they are to take seriously the call to a devout and holy life. In verse 17, look there, it is not Peter's purpose to frighten the children of redemption into obedience by mentioning the fact that their heavenly father, he does mention this fact, is also the judge of every person's work. Peter's not trying to scare believers into obedience, Peter would readily agree with the Apostle Paul that there is no condemnation to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Peter, at the same time, would not have us believers presume upon the Father's love. 
Since you do have the grace of God, he's saying in verse 17, God the judge is one you may call father. The God, he reminds us, who will send people to hell for the same sins his redeemed children commit. The God who is totally objective and impartial, finding all men guilty, this God, Peter is saying, who has redeemed you and not dealt with you according to your transgressions and only because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's asking us, just how seriously do you think you and I should take the call to live a godly life? While for the redeemed there is no fear of hell, let there at least be a sober and reverential respect. We call it a godly fear for the one who has saved you from wrath and made you his own child. I ask, as Peter, this text would ask us, how does the gospel affect your conduct during the rest of the days of your life since the day you first believed in Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way, I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by scaring you to death concerning the judgment of God that you present your body a living. Don't throw stones yet. I've misquoted on purpose. I beseech you therefore, Family of God, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, your whole self unto God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is your reasonable service. This is the only rational thing. Peter feels that somehow for a believer to live willfully in disobedience to the God who redeemed them is nuts. It's irrational. Presenting yourself to God a holy sacrifice is the only reasonable, rational service. A life lived for God's glory. A life of worship because of what Christ has done. Because others are going to go to hell for the same sins that you and I commit But we have received mercy. How then shall we live? So verse 17, be clear as Peter's antidote to the tendency. And we have this tendency. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is an antidote to that tendency of taking a grace-filled father and a grace-filled son relationship for granted. Calling God our father and knowing that he will not judge us as he will others is no excuse for sinning. I try to apply this personally in my own life. By word of testimony, let me say, when I think that some people will go to hell forever and be judged for the same sins I commit, what attitude should I have about my many transgressions, especially those sins that I have committed so willfully and so frequently? 
I'm still learning, I trust you are too, to hate my sins. Even if I haven't conquered as many as I would like, as often as I would like, I'm learning to hate my sins for this very reason. I caused his pain. I drove the nails. Peter's going to get even more passionate about this beginning at verse 18. What he does is he brings fresh scenes of Calvary before our eyes. When he says, knowing that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, should this not be a deterrent to any conscious and willful disobedience? Can we really contemplate the cross and the bleeding sacrifice that gives us the undeserved privilege of calling him Abba, Father, and then, like the prodigal, spend our inheritance on riotous living? Knowing that you were redeemed with perishable, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Boy, in our day, you can't go down the highway, can you, without somebody dancing with a sign asking us to just fork over our gold and our silver. Apparently, it's quite precious today. We want your gold and silver. Peter can't think of anything more valuable himself, so he says, if you think that salvation could be bought with all the gold and with all the silver and all that which is yet to be mined in the earth, you need to know it wouldn't amount to an anthill compared to the Everest of what it meant for the Son of God to be nailed on a tree. Shall we continue to practice those sins for which the blood of Christ was poured out? Oh, it's still true that where our sin abounds, grace abounds the more. I've held on to that many times. But do we go on sinning? God forbid. It would be to hold the most precious thing in the universe, the blood of Christ, as a thing of little value. Though, in fact, Peter says that all that gold and silver in the world cannot match the worth, listen, of even one microscopic drop of divine precious blood. I'm moved by the story of Jenny Evelyn Husey, her testimony. She was born in the 1800s, a difficult time to live in history. She had a sister born after her, A sister born with some disabilities and deformity, in need of daily, even hour by hour and through the night care. And the parents became ill and unable to provide. Jenny had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I think this young woman with all the promise and with all the hope No doubt, dreaming about a marriage to come, all those things that anyone would wish for in their young adulthood. You need to know this Ginny Evelyn Husey sacrificed all of her own future to care for this invalid sister. I think she captured the essence of Peter's message when she learned the secret of keeping the scenes of Calvary fresh in her soul. She wrote these words... Lest I forget 
Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. You see, as she struggled to care day after day after day and year after year for this invalid sister, she said, I need to be led to Calvary. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Perhaps this needs to be our own daily prayer. She rightly applied the bleeding sacrifice when in the last line she penned these words, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even thy cup of grief to share. Why? Thou hast borne all for me, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Folks, let's get honest. Some people are hard to love. Some people are hard to love long. Some people are hard to love even when they're a brother and sister in Christ. And we need fresh glimpses of Calvary. Lest we forget how much he loved this wretch. How can I not love even those to me who may appear unlovely? How vivid Peter's message must have been in particular to those few Jewish believers that had embraced Christ as Messiah and Savior. Note in verse 19, he's using the imagery of Old Testament blood sacrifices. Redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, but not any lamb anymore. This, the blood of Christ. This sacrificial, bloodletting image, I tell you, was not in the mind of the majority looking for the Messiah. It still isn't, quite tragically. The Messiah for them was to usher in an earth-based peace and prosperity, a geopolitical revolution, bringing supremacy to national Israel. What they could not see, what they clearly rejected, is a battered and bloodied man hanging on a cross. To them, he was a stumbling block, so offensive to them that they helped to nail him there. How did they miss it? Did Isaiah not describe in gory detail the suffering servant Messiah? Only sin could bring such blindness. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Don't look down on the Jews, Gentiles. He came into a world of us Gentiles, and we had the same sinful blindness, and we knew him not. But this Jesus truly was the Son of God. In fact, he was the very Lamb of God. Not simply because John the Baptist declared him to be, but because, as we read in the text, the Father, verse 20, before the foundation of the world knew him. That was when all three persons of the Godhead laid out the battle plan to rescue the very ones that Peter said back in verses 1 and 2 of this letter are the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Verse 20, 
this Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, the Redeemer of sinners, Peter says, see it there, verse 20, has appeared in these last times. This is mind-blowing, soul-blowing. For the sake of you. For you. I can understand that. It's the for me part that I still struggle to comprehend. Or as we heard in beautiful music today, why did he love me so? Again, Peter is saying, how does all of that make you think about the matter of our disobedience? Does redemption's price, the precious blood, redemption's lamb, Jesus himself, redemption in the mind and heart of God through all eternity past, does this have any bearing at all on your struggle or mine with sin's desires? Or would it lead us to bow under his lordship and leadership of our lives? We're in this together. I personally testify that I do need, I do need more scenes of Calvary when doing battle with the principle of indwelling sin. Perhaps all of us can pray more earnestly that we might love him more and love our sin a whole lot less, that he would lead us to Calvary, lest we forget. But what I want to share now is probably the most Important, certainly the most comforting truth that emerges in all of Scripture and out of this text as well. I want you to see that Peter will not leave us ever on the shaky ground of our own performance. Certainly not Peter when it comes to personal performance. At the end of each day's battle, so to speak, He reminds us that our faith and hope could never rest in ourselves. Not in our many renewed commitments at the altar. Certainly not in our inconsistent obedience. He reminds us that even more powerful than fresh scenes of Calvary is the fact, this fact, do look at verse 21. It is that we... Through Him are believers in God. You ask, how did I ever come to believe in Christ? Well, here's a text with many others. It is through Him we are believers in God, who raised Him, Christ, from the dead, and gave Him all the glory. Why? Peter tells us, so that our faith and our hope are in God, not in ourselves. Not in our best performance. Not in all our obedience or our disobedience. But our faith, our trust, and our sure hope is in God. Because salvation is of the Lord. Let me summarize. Are we to deny our sinful lusts, selfish desires, pursue godliness? Yes, indeed. God will judge others for the same sins, and yet we have received mercy and not judgment. Why presume upon his grace? 
Nothing less than the very lifeblood of the Christ could redeem our souls. Would we tread it underfoot so carelessly with our transgressions? Well, too often we do. We ought to stand in all that this plan to save us was a plan, he says, laid out within the Godhead even before the world was made. But it is not just how appropriately we respond to these holy and sacred things that brings us an unshakable peace. This is the bottom line. It is the blood that speaks. It is the blood that speaks. That means our whole trust, our faith, and our living hope is in God alone. It is from him and through him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. On the first day you believe and wherever you are now and until Jesus comes. For more than a decade now, I like these, the, the MasterCard commercials. Do you watch those? They're pretty powerful subliminal images. The first one they ever did shows a young boy, all smiles, at a ballpark with his dad. Now, the prices have changed since then, but the lines with very moving scenes went something like this. Two tickets, $120. Two hot dogs and popcorn, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. And then the voice over the pictures says this. Real conversation with your 12-year-old son. You know what comes next, don't you? Priceless. Then it says some things. Money can't buy. For everything else, there is MasterCard. There are some things that money can't buy. Peace with God. The joy of the Lord. The liberty of forgiveness. The fellowship of believers. Life everlasting. Redemption! Priceless. I don't know if you have a MasterCard. I really don't care. But I do hope you have the Master. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, that your faith and hope be anchored in God and nothing else, not certainly even yourself. Right now, in this moment, my conscience is clear. I have declared to you the only place you will ever know the cleansing and the forgiveness of your sins that would bring you into a father and son conversation with your Holy Father, and that is trust and hope alone in this precious blood. Are you trusting? Are you believing? I invite you to do just that. The consequences are eternal. This preacher has always preached for more than 12 years from this pulpit that whosoever will may come. But the condition is clear. 
You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you may be saved.